The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, untangle that fishing pole accident later. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 369 with guests Dan Simmons and Stephen Forte, recorded live Monday, August 18, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who can't stop watching old footage of the Alcatraz swim team, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell back again. Yes, sir. How are you, man? I am well. So this is the first show we've recorded since you got back from the Galapagos Islands. Yep, two weeks without technology. No phones, no computers, no nothing. No phone, no life, no motor cars. I'm happy. You know, it's good. It's a good decompress. Tell us a little bit about what you did. Uh, I took the family. Of course, the daughters are both teenagers now, so they're up for a little more adventurous travel. And we went to Peru and went up Machu Picchu and got a good look around at what the Incans were up to a few hundred years ago. And then uh, headed down to Ecuador and out to the Galapagos Islands. And we did what they call the multi-sport tour. So we were traveling between the islands, uh, seeing different things, and staying on land. Most trips to the Galapagos are actually uh, on boats. Hmm. So we uh, did a little kayaking and a whole bunch of snorkeling and a little bit of boating. And some we hiked up a, a volcano, which was a lot less fun than you might think. And uh, all in all, uh, absolute phenomenal experience. Going to the Galapagos is well worth the time. Do you see any crazy species of animals? I, we saw everything, man. The, land, the, the great big tortoises, uh, sea turtles, uh, the marine iguanas, the land iguanas, the blue-footed boobies, the red-footed boobies, the Nazca boobies. There were boobies everywhere. <laughs> More boobies than anybody could possibly handle. It was, And what's interesting about the animals in Galapagos is they're they're – used to people but they're also used to not being hassled by people because it's very strictly controlled so when you're on an island that is one of the sanctuaries uh, there's a marked trail you have to keep to but the animals if they don't like people they just stay away from them but you know there was a blue-footed booby nesting pretty much on the trail hmm. so and they were not afraid of us at all we could get quite close to photograph you're not allowed to touch but you can get remarkably close one thing i thought was great uh, you were talking about the tortoises and how, you know, talk about a non-evolutionary advantage of being eaten because you're so slow and tasty. And well, and, and therein lies the thing, right? Twelve species of, of giant land tortoise in the world, 11 of them in the Galapagos Islands. Right. The, the 12th is in the Seychelles off the coast of Madagascar. And I, I suddenly had this insight where I realized, you know, at one point, giant land tortoises were on the major land masses, too. It's just that they taste really good. And yeah. so now they're all eaten. And they don't run away so fast. Well, and, and when the Galapagos used to be supply for, for pirate ships. And so the pirates would grab these tortoises live and store them on the boat because they would last six months without food or water. Huh. And then you'd finally pull them out of the hold and eat them. Wow. Sort of like packing a lunch. That's what I'm saying. 
Well, uh, Richard, things have been, things were pretty cool here. We did a few shows with Mark Dunn. You probably heard those, and we had some in the can that we had recorded beforehand as well. Uh, but I, I had a, a good time uh, participating in a couple of films that were being shot around here. Yeah. One of them is called The Curse of Micah Rood, M-I-C-A-H-R-O-O-D, and it stars Ron Palillo, who was Horseshack in Welcome Back, Connor. You remember that show? Yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah. And it, what was really funny was uh, we got to see the premiere, and I, I produced the music for the end credits, and I was the whistle. Uh, there's a whistle that goes throughout the whole thing. It's a short movie. It's about 35 minutes long. It was made by a guy from a uh, sonalist studio here who's now working on his own, um, who also happens to be a childhood friend of mine. So we were at a party the other night, and I found myself sitting there um, with Ron talking about the Welcome Back Cotter days. <laughs> like, you know, I heard that he doesn't really like to talk about that stuff. So, you know, after a little bourbon, we got to listen up a little bit. I just had to ask, you know, is Mr. Woodman really an asshole? <laughs> what? <laughs> was he? Turns out he wasn't. He was a really sweet person. I'm sure he was. Mr. Woodman. Just a character. No, no, no. Of course. That's why it's funny. Apparently not, though. Uh, but anyway, I, I just had a good time, and I also did the music for a short piece that um, uh, somebody else locally here uh, did. It was a five-minute short. So I've been—I had a great time this summer. What I did on my summer vacation—it was a summer vacation for both of us, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. And now we're back at it. Now we got to get back to work. So we're foregoing better know framework in the emails just so that we could catch up with you and uh, let you know what we're up to. So I guess that brings us to our guests. Both of our guests have been on the show a couple of times. I think one of our guests, Mr. Stephen Forte, is, is now making his, what is it, seventh or eighth? Something like that. Appearance, and he may have be the record holder for a guest again. Between him, it's a race between him and Ted Neward. And Ted Neward, who rescheduled, by the way. So I think you might have one up on him, Stephen. Great. And Dan Simmons, who, of course, Entity Framework guy, um... I guess, you know, we, we shouldn't necessarily need to introduce either of you guys again, because here you are again. So what's up? Not much. I just want to go on record saying that Richard is a liar. <laughs> I've just sent all of you a, a, an email with a photo of Richard in the Galapagos Islands updating his Twitter account. Ah. So he was not technology-free 100%. I want you to put that on the show's page as my photo in the bio. Aha. Uh -huh. So you did have some bandwidth. Dude. I want you to know, I'm looking at the photo he just sent. You know what I'm actually doing in that photo? I, he's For the record, you a happy I birthday, am Carl, sending a happy birthday SMS to my friend Carl Franklin. That's right. I did in get that, that picture. I wondered if you had gone to the mainland and gotten in a hotel room or something, how you got that. We were, uh, that was in the, on the island of San Cristobal. There's a cell tower there. I normally had my phone shut off the whole time. I said, just use it as an alarm clock. And I thought, oh, it's Carl's birthday today. I'm going to send him a happy birthday. And that's oh, what thanks. I'm doing in that picture. Thanks, man. I sent a Twitter on my birthday that said, holy crap, I'm 41. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. That's what Twitter's good for. Sending messages to the void. How are you, Dan? I'm doing all right. Yeah, it's uh, it's great uh, having the Entity Framework finally out the door, and uh, been having a good uh, little vacation of my own. Nothing so exciting as the Galapagos, but uh, yeah, hanging out with family. Did you at least have any turtle soup? No, no turtle soup. There's not many turtles in uh, the Seattle area. Not big ones, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> There's a joke but, there. Hey, congratulations on shipping. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a long time coming and a very good feeling. You yeah, got to no do kidding. that now and then. Well, and I remember when when when, two, when 2008 ship dates were announced and EF had been pulled from it, I'm thinking, oh, man, is this product ever going to see the light of day? Yeah, I have to admit, I took myself a little vacation in my office for about a week after that. <laughs> <laughs> did you stop shaving? I, I did not stop shaving, but I, I did get a little cranky. But, uh, you know. Sometimes in, situations, sometimes in situations like that, I like to not shave because then I can take a vacation from myself. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, after, uh, after I banged my head against the wall a little bit, I looked ahead and said, hey, uh, we can still do this thing. 
and uh, it's uh, turned out all right. Yeah, no kidding. Well, out and, and I mean, SP one for the framework and so forth. There's a whole bunch of things. Entity framework's just one piece of it. Yeah, uh, you know, .NET and uh, VS are are trying to get on this pattern of doing sort of more frequent, uh, you know, rhythm of shipping. And, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I can't talk to the version numbers or any of those kinds of things, but uh, SP1 is definitely, you know, a pretty major release. Yeah, back from the old, good old days when service packs were just bug fixes. Now they're really uh, feature ships. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know uh, whether that's a, a story to be repeated multiple times, if we're going to be doing that uh, regularly or what the story will be, but uh, it's definitely true that in SP1, it's a, it's a lot more than, uh, you know, a couple bug fixes here and there. So, uh, feedback, response, how's it been? It's, uh, so far, it's been really quite good. You know, I think uh, having uh, uh, the EF finally out there for real, uh, you know, more and more people are picking it up and, uh, and actually working with it. And, and that's, you know, the best way to really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, so far, you know, a lot of the response has been, been very positive. And, uh, you know, also the fact that we, we kind of, at, at almost the same time, we have been launching this new sort of open design process, um, and really trying to communicate a whole lot more as we go when we're working on V2. And, and that's also been pretty well received. Now, part of this, uh, the open process is going to be the, the advisory council as well? Yeah, you know, we actually had uh, a whole bunch of things we launched all at once. Uh, you know, the, the design blog and all of those kinds of things. And then we had been working on for some time getting together this advisory council, um, you know, and, and we had a, a great meeting. At least I thought it was a very productive time. I'd be interested to hear uh, Stephen's reaction. And so, Steve, you're on this council. Yes, I am. And I was actually quite impressed with the openness that Microsoft uh, shared with us during the two days that we um, participated in a dialogue. I've been on councils before dating all the way back to the Access 97 days. Which, um, <laughs> you admit that? And <laughs> that Dang. product shipped. <laughs> and <laughs> I still think there's a few Access 97 apps in production somewhere. I know there is. I don't know where. Maybe maybe in the Galapagos Islands, keeping track of some of the uh, migration patterns yeah. with the birds. Managing Twitter <laughs> traffic. Exactly. But what I found in older, you know, 10, 12 years ago when I was on advisory councils, I found that Microsoft would more like fly us out and spend a great deal of time telling us what they're going to do ask us our opinion, and then say, oh, okay, and move on. And in this particular case, and, and over the years that's gotten a little bit better, but, but what, what happened in, you know, a couple weeks ago when I was out in Seattle was really, hey, you tell us, you know, forget the past, so to speak. You tell us which direction you think we should be moving. And there was a real dialogue. It was a two-way conversation. And that, that, that's something new for me at Microsoft. And I was very encouraged by that. Yeah, we actually spend a fair amount of time talking about as we as we were putting together the plan for the advisory council. How do we make sure that it's really a two way dialogue? You know, a lot of teams have, uh, <clears throat> you know, these SDRs they call them or whatever right, software, software design, design reviews, review. and and it really is sort of here. Let us uh, just give you some early understanding of what we have already done or are going to do, and we wanted much more of a kind of Let's do a little design together. Let's, you know, get some more advice instead of uh, preaching more to a particular group of folks, uh, especially with the group of people we had. You know, the yeah, we had, group of we had a very diverse group. Yeah, yeah we had a very there? diverse group of people, which I found um, pretty interesting. And, and, you know, I didn't know what to expect. You know, would we be at each other's throats? Would we, you know, collaborate? And I actually found that we did a lot of collaboration. I found that I had more in common with um, with Eric, you know, a domain-driven guy, and with Martin, another domain-driven guy, uh, than, you know, than I thought I would have, which was actually a really great experience because I think that in the process of collaborating, we all found kind of that middle ground. Who all was there, if you can say? Uh, so we had Eric Evans, we had Martin Fowler, uh, of course, Stephen was there, uh, Pavel Ruby, 
Am I missing anybody? Jimmy Nelson. Jimmy Nelson. Exactly. Oh, I'm sorry, Jimmy. Uh, so apparently I was the weak link of, um, you know, with all those smart people on the panel there. It's a lot of PhDs on that panel. Well, yeah, we we definitely had a, a group of people that we, we chose to be both, you know, experienced folks who had very diverse kinds of viewpoints and who, uh, uh, who wouldn't be afraid to kind of share with us uh, what they thought. And, you know, I think uh, one of the things that was really great about the, the advisory council in general was that we could sit down for a big enough block of time to really talk not just about what is it that uh, uh, the entity framework is in its first release and, and kind of that tangible stuff you can see, but more sort of what is the long-term plan and what is, what is the entity data model, you know, overall vision about. So can you share any of the stuff that you talked about? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll give a, a little bit of my viewpoint, and then I, I'd love to hear more what uh, Stephen took away. But, um, you know, the, the entity data model uh, really is intended to be kind of a, a foundational piece for how we can bring together a whole lot of different Microsoft properties, you know, Microsoft tools, uh to to work on a broad set of solutions that have to do with data, not just uh, you know, object relational mapping and those kinds of things, which is a lot of what people see with the entity framework in V1, but how can we start thinking about how to build REST oriented services, web services in general, how can we do reporting, how can we do synchronization, how can we uh you know, have a better way to think about data when it uh, comes into play with workflow or around SharePoint uh, or, you know, all of these different things. And and the key idea is, can we have an abstraction about my data that is sort of more than just what you get out of relational? And if you can have a common language to talk about and think about and reason about your data in a shape that's closer to the way you really work with it, uh, then we can build a set of tools that really take advantage of that in in a similar way, uh, we hope, to the way that relational kind of helped give a, some structure to the way we think about data and allowed us to do a whole lot of things uh, with a sort of broader ecosystem than what you had before that when it's like, you know, here's a series of bytes on disk somewhere. Well, it sounds like where Link fits into the equation, is there deficiencies in what you can already do that um, are preventing you from going forward with that? Well, you know, Link is really just about the query piece. And it, it does help you, you know, uh, reason about writing a query that could run against a variety of different backends and, and do it in the language. But but with Link, you don't get anything about, here's the common structure of your data, here's where the boundaries of uh, the logical entities are, here's how the relationships go together. We happen to have a couple Link implementations that do that, but that's not really part of Link itself. Um, and then especially if you want to start doing dynamic kinds of things, right. uh, you know, Link is really great when I'm writing a program and I have, you know, baked into the business logic of the pro- program a particular query I want to run. But if I want to dynamically determine that query at runtime, then it gets much harder with Link and you really have to start applying other tools. Yeah. Seems like you need a, a special Link processor that doesn't return uh, anonymous types but would sort of bring in the richness of the framework to the results set? Well, yeah, uh, at the same time, a big part of it is how do you even author that query? Right. You know, exactly what sure. makes Link strong is the fact that I can use IntelliSense and things like that to help me with writing the a fixed query at the time in the editor. Right. Uh, you know, uh, but when it comes time to, you know, if, if I want to decide do I want to sort or not and by what column, at runtime, you know, uh, you, you start having to jump through some interesting hoops with Link, and that's why we have dynamic things as well, like Entity SQL and, and those kinds of pieces. That's one of the areas where, um, you know, we did a lot of collaboration and a lot of discussion, especially um, conversations with Eric and myself and, and with also Martin. You know, I've, I've been labeled by some of the N-Hibernate Mafia, or the more politically correct term, the alt.net guys, <laughs> as a database weenie. 
And, you know, what's funny is if they bothered to, like, kind of listen to what I've said and written over the years, they would notice that I'm more concerned about what Dan's talking about. I'm more concerned about that 2 or 3% or 5 or 10% of your application that's going to be very dynamic and Link can't handle it with its structure and the type system, and you're going to need dynamic SQL. And I'm afraid of rogue queries, and I'm afraid of kind of, you know, the runaway, um, the runaway right. data set that just keeps executing for hours and hours and hangs the system, you know, more from the system admin point of view, bringing the server down to its knees. And we had some very good conversations around that for the next version of the Entity Framework. You know, ultimately what the team decides will be based upon some of the conversations we had both at the meetings and over beers that night. But we had a lot of discussions about how you can handle these dynamic types of queries. And, you know, link, link necessi- not, is not necessarily the best way to handle it. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Well, Steve, what were some of the, the better um, suggestions that, uh, that y- on your wish list, anyway? Well, one of the things we spoke about, I think Eric Evans um, had an epiphany at one point and said, he goes, um, Oh, he said to Dr. Strangelove, how he goes, you know, how I stopped worrying and learned to love the bomb. He said how Eric stopped worrying and learned to love stored procedures. Um, in, in essence, is having some procedural support for dynamic SQL or the entity SQL thrown in were probably the top two on our list. Because one of the things that we said is on every ORM environment, there's always kind of like this one little rogue area where you have to kind of execute all this stuff that just right. doesn't fit in. A right. uh, good example is why do I need to load a collection of a million customers to get collection.count? Right? There needs to be kind of an area that we can do this really easily. Yeah. And um, does that hook into a stored procedure? Maybe, maybe not. Does it hook into maybe some eSQL that goes in and grabs that? Maybe, maybe not. But those, these are types of the things that were on the wish list, is the ability to kind of say these areas where SQL is far better than an object model, you know, doing aggregate counts and things like that, let's actually provide a hook in there. And in areas where SQL is pretty lame, and the object model is much better. Let's you know recognize those strengths. Well, this doesn't seem like a new argument in RM land. You know, people have been talking about this kind of stuff that the, the, the dynamism of your code versus the you know the safety of the procedures. This is an old thing. Well, and I, I think one of the interesting pieces about this is folks who who go a long ways down the object model path tend to move eventually towards talking about object databases, uh, which may well be interesting in certain scenarios, but, but I think there is a, a lot to be said for, you know, purposely sitting on the fence between uh, relational model, which is great for some things, and the object model, which is great for, for other things, and admitting that you need both. Um, and that's something, Steve, uh, uh, I believe you've been saying as well, you know, em- embrace the impedance mismatch and do the right thing in the right way with the right tools, and a real solution might be a mix of all of those. Exactly. I really don't believe that an application could be 100%, you know, ADO.NET commands executing stored procedures, but nor do I believe an application can be 100%, you know, objects that are mapped to relational objects, right? It's going to be a blend, and the challenge is finding that that happy medium. Well, you you get the benefits of each, but you also get the headaches of each, so... Well, you definitely need to walk a a fine line between them, and it is an interesting challenge. That's a big part of of why we built the Entity Framework on ADO.NET and as a part of ADO.NET, so that when you're, you know, talking to the connection that's used by the context, it's an ADO.NET connection, and you can purposely go and, and execute commands directly to the database as well. Well, you know, did any did anybody bring up the idea of having some sort of limited um, permission set to the SQL server where the, you know, the DBA could be calm in the fact that you can't drop tables and you can't do any of these things uh, and, and working with that? I, I don't know that we talked about anything new uh, in in that space, but you know you already have those kinds of capabilities. Uh, I, sure. I think that's a that's a, th- a key point to to keep in mind. It does you know, take a can, bit of it does take a bit of know how to to set that up. Would it be would it be a good thing to have something in the product in SQL Server that would you know be a different kind of mode that you could use uh, within any framework without you know sort of a safety switch you can throw? 
Um, well, you know, I think it's interesting to think about, um, you know, wizards or, or modes, ways to set up your server to add, add more of that kind of security. But, you know, I don't know that it would even have to be specific to the entity framework. You know, we see some sure. pretty common patterns where folks will set up and, and give fo- uh, access to, you know, execute queries and execute uh, DML kinds of modification kinds of things, but not be able to modify the database structure. You know, that's a pretty common pattern, and the Entity right. Framework works perfectly well with that, the same as, as you might with other applications. But, uh, but you know, we did definitely uh, talk a fair amount about this, this idea of how, how we kind of mix these different things together, and, and, and even to bring the conversation back a little bit to this concept of the EDM, I think one of the things that I took away, Eric Evans was particularly excited about, was the idea of uh, of how Astoria or ADO.NET data services can be layered on top of an existing object model. You know, if you're a domain-driven design kind of solution, uh, you might have a very rich object model, and uh, and being able to to give a common web service, REST-oriented web service interface over that. Even if you weren't talking to something like the Entity Framework on the back end, uh, but be able to get a common front end kind of tools is a very powerful kind of thing. And it's a good example of this idea of how the EDM kind of goes more than just the object relational story. And what's interesting is um, I think what happens in the very beginning, you know, Dan and everyone around, the, Dan and Tim and everyone was kind of asking us, you know, really to kind of just start speaking your mind. And, you know, when you ask me to speak my mind, you get some interesting results sometimes. And one of the things I said to them, uh, and this is going to come right back to Astoria, Dan, and you'll probably remember the conversation. I said, you know, what's the paradigm shift? And one of the things I said is, you know, if you guys indulge me for one minute, um, you know, in the early days it was ODBC, and then, like, you know, VB changed the rules, and then we got, you know, comp- you know we had scripting languages, and then we no longer had you know, talk to the APIs, then we needed to get, you know, APIs for ODBC inside of Visual Basic that brought us DAO. You know, then the componentization model came, right, OLDB and COM. You know, then .NET came, we got ADO.NET. These were all Microsoft reacting to something, right? The um, OLADB was a reaction to Corbra. You know, .NET was a reaction to Java. And they said, now Microsoft's kind of shifting the paradigm a little bit, and they're shifting the paradigm with the entity data model. And I said, for better or for worse, you know, we're asking developers to do different things. And the unfortunate thing was that no one in the room knew what the new paradigm was. All they could say was, well, we, we see that there's a lot of internal pain here at Microsoft, and we see the entity data model as a solution to that. And I said, well, and I said, that might not be good enough for developers, because, you know, if you're just saying to developers, we need you to code differently, you're going to, you know, you're going to have to learn this new system. You're going to have to rip out your data sets and, you know, use the entity data model, et cetera, et cetera. Then we started talking about Astoria. And that's when I think we all started agreeing that this might be the beginnings of the paradigm shift. You know, the whole, whatever you want to call it, Web 2.0 or the restful movement um, in, in the community is, and then having those Astoria objects, um, you know, sitting right on top of the entity data model was a very compelling story. You know, real quickly, I, I think Dan did a real quick demo where he just, you know, reverse engineered Northwind and then looped through some, looped through some entities, uh, you know, built an entity, built, built the diagram and looped through some entities and printed them out to the console window. You know, great. Um, you know, not, not that compelling, right? But we, he was just kind of getting the feet wet. But then Pablo Castro comes in and takes that same, you know, EDMX file, drags it into his project, and, you know, with one or two quick manipulations was, was exposing all of that as pretty much a web service, you know, with, um, you know, using REST and Atom, the Atom format. And, of course, we had a little sidetrack getting into base. Was Atom the right format or not? Um, I actually thought it was. Uh, some of the others did not. Um, but I really think that the story there was very compelling, and that is the beginnings of a paradigm shift, I think. And, um, I mean, Dan, is, is that the impression you got from some of our conversations? Yeah, I think definitely so. I think, you know, one of the things that really opens up people's eyes is when you say, all right, I go through that experience of taking a entity data model uh, with the entity framework and building a data service on it and maybe building a front end. I think Pablo even showed a silver light kind of front end on that. Um, and then you say, 
I can build that same kind of a front end with the same tools over some completely in-memory objects like the process list or, you know, who knows what thing that has maybe even no relationship to the database. Um, and suddenly I'm using that uh, from the standpoint of the Silverlight client experience or whatever else you might put on the other side of that REST service, it still is EDM. It still has all of that the same kind of common language around it. And that's when things start to get really powerful. Um, and, and I think it is a, a nice mix between uh, having, on the one hand, uh, some of what Microsoft has traditionally done very well, which is to take something that maybe isn't a huge paradigm shift, but kind of get into that space and, and really bring all of the tools to bear and, and kind of take object relational mapping, those kinds of things, and, and try and bring them more to a mainstream audience. And, and there's a lot of th things inside of Microsoft that will take advantage of that. And then blend in with that some of this, you know, sort of much uh, more of a paradigm shift kind of new thinking. And I think that's really where we hope that we can be a big success is sort of that mix of the two strengths. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. It's interesting to think about the fact that there's this is not just about object relational mapping. There's this entity, the entity data model is seems to be the focal point of what entity framework is really about. That that's right, and that it's something that we have struggled for a long time because it takes us a while to to get to the point where we can concretely demonstrate using the EDM in places other than the object relational mapping, other than the kinds of things that the entity framework is doing in its first release. But the, the long-term vision is really about the EDM being used in a whole bunch of places, and the Entity Framework is, you know, the first sort of key building block to getting there. And that's one of the areas that impressed me is, uh, not that I went into the meeting skeptical, but my biases do lean more on a, harnessing the raw power of T-SQL, and partly because I find T-SQL pretty easy, and I've been in highly scalable environments in my old days at you know, NFL.com and Zagat.com and things like that, where if we didn't, you know, index a certain column, the site just wouldn't work for the, you know, billion page views we got each month. And those are the types of biases I brought in. And one of the things that I've usually kind of stayed away from ORM is because, well, I like to take my database and have a highly transactional database and I have my index strategy and structure and I have my stored procedures and I have my objects hooked up to those stored procedures and I do all my CRUD. And then I have another database, which is transformed from that database, which is like for loosely just termed a reporting database, a flatter, maybe denormalized database. And I run my reports off that. A lot of times I run my website off of that. You know, I structure the database into two models. And what I found interesting is when I challenged the team on that model, that particular design pattern for database structure and application design, they said, you know, we don't expect you to use the same EDM for both of those databases. We want you to make the investment in EDM in general, and then now you use this one tool and you can use it for both those applications. You know, the highly optimized, you know, insert, edit, you know, delete 
application that is really optimized for fetching and deleting and adding one record at a time. You can still build an EDM around that. And then the other application, which is highly optimized for aggregate querying and displaying lots of you know, repetitive data, you could build an EDM around that. And that's one of the, the interesting things that I took away that I thought was pretty nice was, was you're looking more at the investment in the technology and the tool for being common across whatever type of application you're building. I, I think that's a really good point. That's something that we haven't done uh, nearly so good a job as you just did about making clear to folks. Is it, It's absolutely true that um, we, we have discovered over the last number of years, as people have done a bunch of different experiments in building real solutions, that you do need different ways of looking potentially at the, essentially the same data for different parts of your application, different parts of your overall solution. Um, but the uh, and when we started trying to talk about having common tools, common data model, people heard us uh, inadvertently. You know, we didn't mean to say this, but saying that we would build one model and that you would use it for everything. Uh, and I, to be honest with you, I heard that as well at first. Uh, I think maybe just in the early evangelism, you know, back at Dev Teach in Vancouver, um, I heard that. You know, I, I just think that maybe it was just. Maybe we were hearing what we wanted to hear. Uh, who knows? Uh, you know, but I, I definitely think that that has changed. Well, and, and you know, it it certainly doesn't help us that we have in our history things like I don't know, hailstorm, uh, where you know there was the claim that that not only would it be one data model for your application, but maybe one for everyone, uh, which had some interesting ideas, but clearly wasn't the right uh, the right long term uh, approach. Uh, but uh, but I do think it, it is very important to be able to say, hey, if I'm doing a similar kind of operation, if I'm building a logical model and I'm trying to describe it and be able to reason about it, uh, why should, when I do that for reporting, why should I have to use a completely different tool with a completely different set of skills than when it's time to do that for my object relational mapping or for my synchronization or for my or any one of these other kinds of things? Um, and, and we really want to be able to say, hey, leverage that learning that you already have and that investment you have in the, this way that you reason about models in general across all of these different things. And that's one thing, another thing, as I said, that I took away because originally I figured, well, I'd build this big EDM for my OLTP app, and then I'm not going to want to reuse that for my website and, or for my reporting. And I still think that there needs to be work done on, on the EF team side, and we've identified a lot of those areas, especially with you know, the aggregates and things like that. Where, where it will be compelling to use the EDM for reports, and that might be in a, you know, obviously that's going to be in a future release. But I really feel that that's the, the message that we as the, as the team sent to you, I mean, as the advisory council sent to you, the team, and I think that that wasn't something new. I think we were telling you stuff you already knew. I think you already heard that feedback from customers, and we were just validating that for you. Yeah, I, I do think, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of good discussion, and it really the advisory council did help us a lot to sort of, clarify thinking and and to kind of see uh different viewpoints on it but but it also was true and kind of encouraging to us that it wasn't like there was uh a huge you know completely different viewpoint uh and that we needed a big you know u-turn in direction or something i gotta think that's one of your fears there when you set up one of these councils is you end up with you know five really smart guys saying what you're doing is completely wrong. Yeah, yeah, it is a it is a real fear, uh, you know, and uh, and I think we came out with you know maybe some difference in uh, uh, emphasis and and uh, you know some good healthy discussion about priorities and ordering and and tuning and things like that, um, but it wasn't it wasn't that huge uh, huge change. Um, which is great, uh, you know. Uh, we, of course, the other thing that it just reinforced once again was we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> uh, you know, this is a big multi-release uh, effort, and uh, and that's that's uh, exciting and and daunting all at the same time. What was Fowler's opinion? Did he have any good uh, good things to say? Well, you know, uh, I think one of the things that uh, was a big discussion. Uh, and, and part of his uh, his viewpoint was, why, why not in Hibernate? 
you know, uh, object relational mapping for that portion of what you're doing is something that uh, has been done before, and and uh, do we really need a, a huge additional investment in that area? Uh, which is a perfectly fair point. And, uh, to which you know, my response is, I certainly don't have anything against in Hibernate. You know, like more people writing .NET apps, if they're successful with that, more power to them. I think that's great. Uh, of course, it doesn't change the fact that you know the the realities of the situation we're in. Other Microsoft uh, products that might pick up the Entity Framework and, and do their object relational mapping portion of their application can't typically ship uh, an application built on in Hibernate. Yeah, you can't count on that as part of your strategy. You know, there are some uh, legal realities associated with that and those kinds of things. And, and so we do end up having to invest in that space. Uh, but But we don't really see that as a we want to wipe in hibernate off the planet or something by any means. Uh, if, if people are being successful building the apps, that's great. We just want to help more people be successful in more ways. Wait, I, I thought open source was free. I mean, you can't take open source and ship it with SQL Server? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that was actually a very interesting conversation. That was one area where, um, where pretty much all five of us on the council agreed. We're like, we get it now. It took us a couple hours, meaning, you know, when um, Danny and Tim were explaining division and Pablo, when they are explaining division to us, we said, we get it. You're not an ORM. I mean, well, you are an ORM. You're one of the piece, one of your pieces is an ORM, but the entity data model is much bigger than being just an ORM. And one of the things that I walked away from and in the advice I'm going to give to, you know, developers at TechEd and then, of course, the engineers at Telerik at my day job and, and other places is, you know, people can build applications on top of um, the EDM, including ORMs, meaning, you know, third-party ORMs, and I believe that IdeaBlade is already doing this, can build ORMs right on top of, um, you know, the entity data model. And I think to some degree, if Microsoft pushes the model more and emphasizes the ORM less, and even if the, M even if the ORM has a, has a lukewarm reception um, in the marketplace, um, it, it will still, of course, be developed because internally it needs to be used. But externally, um, the Entity Framework can still be an overwhelming success if other ORMs choose to use, you know, choose to layer themselves on top of EDM. And, you know, and Hibernate, that's a good example. I would love to see them, um, you know, rip out all that old code and, and build it right on top of the EDM. Uh, I think I think that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about platform. How do we build a data platform that can be used as an underpinning for all different kinds of things? And in some cases, we build more end-to-end -end solutions, and you can build your app directly to those APIs, and if that works, great. In other cases, we're building, you know, much smaller building blocks that other people can layer higher abstractions on top of, and that's also great. And we really want to make sure that we enable, you know, that, that whole ecosystem of things. Well, I find it an interesting idea that N-Hibernate might consume EDM to do its thing. It is interesting. That's one of the things that, you know, Martin kept saying, you know, very on a moral grounds, which is arguing, get out of the ORM business completely. And Danny kept fighting back saying, if we wish, we, we would if we could, but, you know, we need it internally. And for obvious reasons, the GNU license, we can't ship, you know, and hibernate with something like SQL Server or something else. So right. I kept arguing exactly that as well. You guys should be pushing the platform because that's where Microsoft's always been successful, right? I mean, Microsoft's been always been successful selling platforms and letting the third-party ecosystem build on top of those platforms. And if you look right now, I don't want to divert the conversation, but a quick analogy is the iPhone. Have you heard of that, Dan? <laughs> the iPhone? <laughs> um, I heard that their iPhone goes into, if you have the word iPhone in an email to Microsoft, it goes into the corporate spam filter or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Jeez. But the iPhone, um, I don't think long-term will be that successful unless they kind of loosen the grip on the third-party application development. Right now, application developers have to pretty much get approval from Steve Jobs himself if they want to build something with the iPhone SDK. And Microsoft, and that was the same problem with the biz, for business users on the Mac, you know, 20 years ago. And that's why Microsoft's always been so successful and so dominant. So I really feel that the entity framework, to me, is a platform. Do we need more and iPhone apps? Is there a, death, is, a, der, is there a dearth is of the iPhone apps out there? Does iPhone, Dan? <laughs> Everything works. Uh, yes. what? 
When, when, it, when it works on an iPhone, the iPhone will sell, will sell a billion units. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but just going back is, I always look, I walked into those meetings thinking that, you know, the entity framework was more about ORM and less about a platform, and I walked out thinking the opposite. And that's the challenge for Dan and his team is to evangelize exactly that. When they did a good job teaching us five, in two days, they can teach the rest of the development community, obviously with everyone's help, but they can do a good job doing that. You know, if Microsoft emphasizes the platform play. Okay. That's definitely the goal. So, so success with, with the first five people educated. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. I asked Dan, what is a measure of success? Um, and Martin, I think, asked the same question, too. And he, he did say when, um, you know, Steve Jobs is using, you know, an application running on an iPhone with the entity data model. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> Careful the words I'm, you put into my mouth. <laughs> okay, I'm just kidding. I might have said that and then attributed that to Dan. <laughs> but, well, you know, now I suddenly, Astoria makes sense to me uh, in this equation because it's uh, another example of what you can use EDM for. Rather than an ORM, there's this Astoria model. That's right. That's right. And you can use Astoria, you know, with the EDM. It integrates very well. But you can also use it completely independently of the entity framework, but it still exposes all the information as EDM, even if your data is coming from somewhere else altogether. And and it really was sort of the first, you know, you know you don't have an abstraction until you have two, right? Right. And uh, Astoria was, was number two. It proves that there's abstraction, <laughs> Uh, and then as we start uh, kind of moving out, uh, you'll see over the next few releases, we're kind of moving out and bringing more and more into that common abstraction. Yeah, so now I want to see more abstractions. And one of the ones I'm thinking about is something I heard way at the beginning of the discussion about Entity Framework, which was its relationship to SQL Server. And SharePoint and Workflow and all those other great things. There's a yeah. big list. Well, you know, there... Uh, SQL Server is kind of an interesting uh, product, interesting name. You know, I sit in the SQL Server building, and uh, and it's a whole family of things. And and I don't know at what point how much of the EDM moves into the you know the database server process itself, but uh, EDM in uh, is going to be I- integrated more and more into the family of SQL Server services. And probably the first place that you start seeing more of that, well, it's kind of a race right now. We're working a lot with uh, both uh, the sync team, the sync framework, uh, and with uh, reporting services folks um, here in the building. Uh, and But there's simultaneous conversations. You know, as, as the entity framework becomes, uh, you know, now finally shipped and, and becomes more uh, successful, Externally, it also gets a lot more momentum inside the company, and uh, we're spending a lot of time talking with the SharePoint guys and uh, with you know just a whole bunch of teams around the company. Did you say the Sync team? Isn't that the car technology? Or am I thinking of something else? Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. So what I meant was uh, the the Sync framework as opposed to the uh, Auto PC renamed right. Sync in conjunction with Ford or whatever that is. Okay. Yeah, and the Sync Framework is really about replication and, yeah, and exactly. other related technologies. Um, and, you know, we, we typically talk about synchronization instead of replication because, um, you know, replication, we usually talk about, you know, taking an exact sort of image from one database to, the, to another at a relatively low level. And synchronization, we tend to think about more of the logical entities, the logical objects that your app operates on, right? Um, which is important because you may have a relational database on your mid-tier that has stuff spread all around, and then you might want to make a local offline cache where you take logical objects that pulls data from multiple tables and just groups them and, and maybe has a completely different representation on your client machine that's more efficient for one user at a time. Well, and synchronization gets even bigger when you start thinking about stuff like SQL 2008, where I have images that are referenced in the data structure, but are stored on the disk. Yeah, that's right. It it gets more complex. And so, yeah, I can see why you use the phrase sync, because it it means more. Yeah, and, and, you know, the the sync framework team, uh, you know, has also, uh, in the, the recent past, 
made some real progress on on getting that out and getting sort of the core logic for how you do this synchronization together and and sort of next step for us that we're trying to work a lot on is more of the end-to-end story about making it easier to glue whole solutions together, you know, and the EDM has the potential to really help with that, uh, where you can say, you know, have an entity framework, you know, providing uh, potentially pieces on both a client-side offline experience to something like SQL CE, uh, as well as maybe on your mid-tier with uh, Astoria as a web service kind of front-end. Uh, you know, there was a great prototype of that shown at Mix last year. Uh, where That's where it gets really exciting, Dan. I mean, having, you know, the Astoria um, data being consumed and then having an EDM locally using the same framework and either something on a SQL CE device or even locally on MSDE, that's when it really starts getting exciting, when you really, um, you know, have that consumption of the Astoria service. And on the back end, sure, it was using the EDM as well, but then now on the client, we're using it as well. Yeah, you know, this is something that folks have been building sort of by hand for years. I worked on this in Outlook. Uh, we did it when I worked on NetDocs, uh, and and all kinds of folks have done similar kinds of things. But it, it's an awful lot of work if you have to build all of those pieces yourself and try and make it scalable. And the Sync framework kind of did the first step in getting sort of the key synchronization logic, which is, you know, the real, you have to be a sync expert to get right. And, uh, but now making it sort of easier to really integrate that into your application, that's still quite a big vision that's going to take us a little while. But I think, you know, I think we have the pieces that in the next few releases, we can make it much more realistic to, to write an application and very quickly say, oh, and let me offline enable that application and give you a you know, maybe a rich WPF uh, front end that even works offline, uh, and then sync to talk to your to your mid tier through a story or something like that. That's definitely part of the vision. Yeah, and you know, I I think sync is a whole show unto itself because there's a bunch of opportunities here for more sophisticated technology. It's very easy if you're a database person to think of replication as purely a server to server thing and not really thinking about the value of uh, some of the client synchronization options we have. Yeah, uh, you know, there are definitely uh, some some folks that would be good to talk uh, talk to about that. But I'll, I'll tell you. When I started seeing these guys get involved in putting it in a general format, you know, it was sort of hallelujah for me. Uh, you know, I've written Sync at least three times in in Microsoft products, and I really didn't want to ever write it again. Uh, <laughs> <I'm not> sure. <laughs> and uh, you know, when it works, it's great, but uh, it's a long, hard road to to get it there. So where are we as far as a V2 is concerned? Are you guys still formulating? I mean, I got to presume the council was mostly about influencing V2. Uh, it, well, it was really about sort of the the long-term vision, which is V2 and and really sort of V3 and going ahead and how do we make sure that we're you know, we know that this is a multiple release kind of story and so how do we make sure that we're laying the building blocks in the right order to to get to the to the right long-term goal? Yeah, the place where we're at in V2 now is, you know, we're we're going strong uh, on development. If you go to the, you know, uh, EF Design blog on MSDN, you'll see a whole series of different things that we've already kind of released uh, to get some feedback. And and in most of those cases, the work on those features is is actively underway, and some of it already completed. Um, so you know, the because Visual Studio and .NET as a whole are really trying to to improve the the rhythm, the frequency of of shipping, uh, you know, and not have any of these uh, grow growing releases <laughs> as much as we can. Uh, you know, we're we're going strong on V2, and and really uh, by the end of this year, we will have done an awful lot of the V2 work. You're getting suspiciously close to a release date description there, Daniel Simmons. Had the, so <laughs> that's a very good point. <laughs> so uh, you know that's the that's that's one of the things that's one of the more challenging pieces about working at Microsoft as the as the product teams grow. The time between when we do most of the work and when we can get that work with 
58 teams or however many it is and nine gazillion developers all in one form for public consumption just takes a lot longer than I wish it did. Oh, let's throw the let's throw the legal team in there too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. One of the things that Microsoft, you know, as a developer at Microsoft has been that the the executives are pretty good at is allowing us developers to pretend that stuff doesn't go on as much right. as possible. Yep. Uh, you know, they kind of behind the scenes just uh, show up like a little SWAT team when they have to, and most of the time they, they melt into the shadows. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it does take a while uh, to get everything in that, in that final form. So, you know, I think we're – who knows what the final release date for, the, for V2 will be. You know, it certainly won't be this year. But uh, – but we are hot and heavy in development, and uh, and I just can't wait until we can get some public CTPs or betas out there so people can start seeing a lot of these things that that they've been asking us for that we just couldn't get into V1. You know, we have made real active progress on and and can start showing folks uh, hopefully before too long. Can we name a couple of features? Well, we've, we've been spending a lot of time working on, you know, POCO and those persistence ignorance kinds of things. Right. Uh, you know, and, and there's been some real good progress made in that area. We've spent uh, quite a bit of time working on building, building blocks into the system that are both useful for end users, but also really are the key pieces that make reporting services and some of these other things work, like being able to define functions in your model so that you can have computed properties that are computed in the database as a part of your model, uh, being able to reference arbitrary functions from uh, whatever database backend you have in link uh, and Entity SQL uh, in a cleaner way. Um, you know, are you inching towards saying the word stored procedure? Well, you know, we're not we're not doing stored procedures in in Entity SQL or in the Entity Framework directly, but we certainly want you to be able to, if you write a stored procedure on the back end in T-SQL or whatever your back end database is, uh, we have done a lot of work around how to map that into uh, uh, what you would use from the Entity Framework. So you can retrieve objects from a stored procedure, use stored procedures to do updates. You know, we had some support for that in V1, and we're getting a whole lot more flexible in that uh, in uh, V2. Cool. And, uh, you know, and those are just kind of the things that we've already mostly been working on, mostly completed with. Uh, there's a whole lot more, you know, that we're hoping to get into V2 as well around, you know, template-based code generation, around uh, automatic query interception and rewrites, uh, around, you know, just a whole whole series of things, better support for custom types uh, in the back-end database. Uh, the list is, is long, and of course, the list of the, that's in the backlog of all the things we wish we could get in is, you know, miles and miles long, but hmm. I guess you call that job security. Well, it's nice to get a sense that you have many versions ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So when is the next advisory council meeting? Well, that's a good question. We haven't scheduled it yet. We need to, uh, you know, one of the other interesting things is uh, part of the overall data programmability group, uh, you know, we have the, the entity framework, the EDM kind of vision. We also have a lot of other things going on in, in this team, and, and quite possibly the next time we get the advisory council together, whether it's this same audience or a slightly modified audience, uh, you know, we'll want to focus on some of the other technologies that are underway, like. Uh, uh, around XML, around uh, other parts of the database connectivity stack, uh, and so I don't know that that's been scheduled yet, but definitely, uh, definitely in the plans. All right, Dan, Steve, thanks for uh, thanks for the talk. It's been great. Yeah, I, no I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot for. I, I appreciate Stephen's uh, viewpoints as well. Uh, it's it's great to have. Uh, folks from outside the camp come in and uh, and kind of share their wisdom. I really appreciate that, and I appreciate the conversation with you, Carl and Richard, as well. Great. Been great. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Been great. Thanks, Forte. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks. 
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got to transmit a van